That's Scott Gardner. Hi. And that's Bill Robinson. Let's go. <laughs> we are off and running. 
No wasted Wait. time today. Bill, keep up, Bill. Keep up. The zombies are coming. <laughs> Bye. The zombies are coming, and they're going to take Bill out. As long as Scott and I can run faster than him. All right, let me tell you One today. opening co-host need to... Oh, sorry. What? <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> Experience not necessary. <laughs> if you want to get rid of me, you could just say, Bill, why... Talent's not Bill, needed. Why, 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 why don't you come over in August and we can go walk the parks? <gasps> <laughs> Let's go to Epcot, Bill. <laughs> How you boys doing? Doing awesomely. How about you? Doing all right. You, you know, we we're getting past your vacation time, going into Bill's vacation time, and I'm waiting for my vacation. Oh time. yeah, baby. And that's the yeah. that's the beauty of summer. It just started like after I dropped my wife off the airport. I was dri- I was uh, uh, driving back home, and for some reason, the Mortal Kombat music popped into my head. And instead of going Mortal Kombat, it was Sorting Comics! Avengers! You know, well, really, the only reason I even took vacation is because the wife and Ben were going back up to Ohio, and I need to be here because uh, we don't have anybody to watch the dog. And, and you know, and it gives me time to myself. That's it. Yeah, you couldn't go off to work and leave the dog for the day. No, because he would poop all over the house. And, yeah, and he's not. Now? No, because I'm home. He's pooping all over Bill. <laughs> Actually, I'm going to have to take the old guy to the vet the next week. He's got uh-huh. some, some type of ear. Infection. That's what the dog was saying about you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, the dog's uh, he's got like a little ear thing going on, and he so uh, if you hear him whine, you should have two of them. Yeah, very funny. It keeps sticking. Now, I, I don't know if I probably mentioned this to you before, but I you know like these uh, newspapers, like these ones that the National Enquirer, not the National Enquirer, but the ones that are even more. Oh yeah, yeah. Outrageous. Daily World News or I remember, something. Yeah, back in the 1980s, they had one where uh, the story, the headline story, was that a guy was out with his dog in the car going somewhere, and he had a heart attack, and the dog actually completed the drive. <laughs> To the vet, because that's where the dog knew. He didn't know how to get to the hospital. What? what? <laughs> this was the story. I swear to God, I thought it was the funniest thing. And there was a photo of a dog with his two paws up at you know at uh, ten and two on the steering wheel, <laughs> and, and it said like the 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 caption said Rex recreates a different dog's name's heroic drive so they didn't even have a picture of the dog that they said did this they had to have another dog come in and get behind the wheel <laughs> to take the picture oh good lord that's ridiculous so it's, that's, that's like 30 something years ago i saw that and it stayed with me ever since because i remember just being hysterical laughing looking at the picture i was i remember <laughs> the picture of, of uh, bat boy because it looks like our current governor for the state <laughs> i remember i remember bat boy yeah go go look up rick scott florida governor <laughs> yeah, Bat Boy. There you go. Bat Boy all grown up. You you laugh. Aww. You know I'm right, Scott. No, you know yeah. Like. No, now that I think about it, yeah. Yeah, you're not, yeah. You're not far <laughs> off. Liberals hate Rick Scott. Scott. What? That's what that's the first first uh, thing on, on uh, Google is liberals hate Rick, Rick Scott. Really? 
Yeah, he does look kind of Bat Boy like. Get get one where he's got his mouth open, smiling. Yeah, there he is, Bat Boy. <laughs> I bet if you typed in Rick Scott, let me into it. Rick Scott. I'm gonna put it a B and see if it, it if it auto completes. B no beach. Oh, that's the other thing. Yeah, because he's closing all the. Yeah, I don't know. You don't even know about that, do you, Scott? Well, let's not do politics. You know what we should do? We should do a show. Rick Scott Bat Boy. We should do a comic book. (laughs) There we go. Type in Rick Scott Bat Boy and then see the image that comes up. Rick Scott Bat Boy. I'm thinking there'll be a Tampa Bay Bat Boy for the team. Uh, Where is it? Then they get other ones where he looks like... (laughs) (laughs) All right. Anybody listening should do that because it's funny. Then they got ones further down where he looks like Voldemort. Voldemort. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there's one with like the uh, kind of an alien head. Yeah. There's one with Nosferatu, <laughs> which is very similar to, to Bat Boy. Anyway. They got him looking like the judge. You know, there's one where they have him next to the judge from uh, uh, Roger Rabbit. <laughs> Not dip. Uh, Anyways, I I so had that McDonald's we doing our Marvel first? We doing our Marvel first? Sure. Oh, okay. Oh. That is the, the traditional format. Uh, yeah, it's been so long format. since we've done it. Oh, man, I might have yes. to hit, hit the bathroom. Hmm. It's been a long time <clears> since <throat> I rocked and rolled. Ooh. All right. So, Marvel first. All right. Well, here's the thing. Um, so since we kind of threw this together, I want to say the last minute, but, uh, I, I didn't have a lot of prep time on this. So I basically went with what I, what I was reading when I got the message. Hey, you guys want to record tomorrow morning? So here you go. Uh, so this is the quick and dirty. I do not have a synopsis on this. I don't have a lot of information on this either. I have no idea who did the cover on this one. Is it signed? Uh, and yeah, it sort of is, but I can't it's tell a picture who that somebody's, is. of a bunch of guys feet. Yep, the reflections bunch... of the shield. Yep. Okay, so we can eliminate Rob Liefeld from these <laughs> possible parts. Oh, that's harsh. All right, so what we have here is New Avengers Volume 3, Number 3. This is from 2013, February, as I recall. I did look this up on Mike's Amazing World, but I didn't write it down it or anything. So, um, But what you have here is you have the feet of the Black Panther, Iron Man, uh, Namor the Submariner and Mr. Fantastic of the Fantastic Four are all gathered around, and all you see is their their feet essentially their their legs from like the knees down. They're gathered around Cap's shield, laying uh, on the ground, and you can see their faces reflected like they're looking down at the shield. So it's kind of a stylistic, kind of a cool cover, I guess. Uh, now I'm looking at a digital copy of this, so it has no price on it. But again, if I remember properly, on Mike's Amazing World, it said the original cover price on this was three ninety nine. Uh, this is uh, for what it's worth, Scott. I'm on Marvel Wiki right now. Uh, I just looked it up, yeah. and under the cover artist, the name they have listed is Jock J O C K. I have no idea who that is. Yeah, but that's what it's. Well, that's what the, the signature says, Jock. Uh, I can make that. I thought it was Jack actually, but no, I blow it up and it actually is Jock. But yeah, I have no idea who that is. But Jock shit. Jock Jock Black Jock Sherlock, I guess. That's who I'm thinking. <laughs> Jock Cousteau. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you know what? In the in the it always premise. comes back to Bugs Bunny. Mike Mike uh, <laughs> Bailey is wrong. It doesn't come back to Superman. 
in the in the credits, uh, it does actually say just simply cover art or cover art jock. So yeah, there you go. I'm gonna say block jock jock. I like that. All right, so this is a story called Infinity, which is the entire reason I was reading this because I'm trying to get myself caught back up to the point where I because. A couple of years ago, I actually was caught up on Marvel Comics. I, I was reading fairly concurrently with what was coming out at the time. And I don't know, something shiny went by and, and I stopped reading. I, I got distracted, started doing other projects and everything. And then I didn't keep up. So I'm trying to get back to where I was. But I, as I was reading this, it started to remind me of other reasons that I kind of petered out on keeping up with Marvel stuff, you know, current Marvel stuff, but we'll talk about that after uh, the synopsis on this. So anyway, this is, uh, the title on this story is simply Infinity. Uh, it's written by Jonathan Hickman, pencils by uh, Steve Epting, uh, inks by Rick Magyar, and uh, with Steve Epting, and that's all I'm going to go into, because these days they list, like, you know, everybody, including, like, the Waterboy with the credits on these. It's friggin' ridiculous. It's like, I just need the the artist and the pen, the inker and the writer. I don't care about all these other people. Adam anyway. <laughs> so we start out here, and we get a nice little scene where apparently Charles Xavier has died again. Um... I guess he, he and uh, uh, Jean Grey are having like a contest, like who can die and get resurrected the most times in the, in the X Men. Anyway, he's dead, and the executor of his will gives this piece of paper to Doctor McCoy. Now I got a real kick out of this because I think sometimes people. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I just went to the same place. <laughs> well, that, you know what? I, I I went there when I saw the note. But I didn't put together that it's Dr. McCoy until right. you just said it. Right. So he. <laughs> so that that just brought it to a whole nother level. Right. He gets a, he gets an envelope. He opens the envelope, and the note inside the envelope simply says, "Remember." And I thought, "Oh, that's pretty clever." And I don't know that they that Steve Epting meant that, but I'm gonna take it. I'm yeah, sure you know? that they meant. So that. I'm I sure thought that they did. I can't imagine that you could possibly do that and not realize it. Right. Anybody yeah. at least did with you know the kind of backgrounds that we have. I don't know if you guys ever read um, Star Trek X-Men. Not a great book, but it has its moments. And there is a really good moment in that when the crew when the X-Men and the Star Trek crew meet initially, and there's a moment where I think it's Nurse Chapel walks in and you've got Leonard McCoy and Henry McCoy, the beast like face to face with each other and she walks in she goes she screams and she's startled I guess by the beast's appearance she goes Dr. McCoy and they both turn and go yes at the same time and then they look at each other like huh and I always you know so that's why it always stands out to me that the beast is Dr. McCoy but anyway I thought that was kind of what would make me crazy is if they added some sort of a plot line in there where they think that they're related Uh, oh god I would hate so glad they didn't do that (laughs) anyway so this triggers that was where Kirk was hitting on uh, Jean Grey, too, if I remember correctly. I think so. Yeah, I think yeah. you're right. Uh, so this triggers um, a, a memory that's been suppressed uh, in the Beast by um, Charles Xavier, where basically he makes him... Uh, he, he brings him into the fold, as it were, that if anything ever happened to Charles Xavier, that the Beast would become the possessor of uh, one of the Infinity Stones that was left in... Uh, Charles's care. This this all spins out of when they formed the Illuminati, where there was uh, various 
heads of different different facets, different families, as it were, of the Marvel Universe that all came together to form the, the Illuminati. And at some point or other, I, f- I forget exactly when, each one of them was given one of the Infinity Stones for safekeeping. So the Beast gets the Infinity Stone, and as soon as he does... Oh, man, I got the mind <laughs> I wanted the Power Stone. I'll trade as you. As soon as he touches the stone... Um, Black Bolt appears. Uh, Lockjaw has brought Black Bolt, Namor, and Captain America, which I don't, I don't know how he became one of the Illuminati. I, I don't know if you guys know the the missing link with that. I, I don't remember him being part of the Illuminati. So maybe he's he wasn't initially somebody else. But, I, but what's that? He wasn't initially. But the, I said he wasn't initially. I think but when they, he was brought in, he changed it around sometimes. Into the fold, he was all pissed off about it too. If I remember right. right. Oh, I would imagine so. He acts like he doesn't, you know, he doesn't approve of the whole thing to begin with. But anyway, they bring uh, Beast into the fold. So. Then we, a day later, we see that uh, you know the Illuminati is together, and they basically they make uh, they talk about their secret pact and everything, and they know that something's going on. So, what's already the story that's already in progress here is much like the scary grup in the beginning of Miri. These people, these powerful beings, keep appearing to the Marvel Universe folks and saying it's broken, and they're talking about the the universe. Basically, something's gone piss wacky. And the universe is coming to an end. The multiverse is coming to an end. Yeah, this is the so whole we cut to a thing, thing that Hickman did with the in, in, incursions, where other Earths were incursing, like right. meeting and destroying each other. Exactly. Uh, but it was being caused by people. That's yeah. So we cut to a scene where um, there's a woman that's being basically held captive, um, the Black Swan. Uh, which is one of these powerful characters that arrived wow. and is, is doing this whole, you know, your multiverse is broken type of thing. And she's talking to Reed Richards, and they realize that she knows a lot more than than she's talking than she's saying. And they're trying to convince her to come clean and and give up the information that she knows, which would come in time. Uh, anyway, the next incursion happens, and they head to um, some snowy mountaintop in Pakistan. To- Go ahead, say it. What's that? The name. Oh uh, yeah, yeah. No, that's. Bad. I've been waiting for you to say it. <laughs> you get. No, I don't want to Pakistan. Yeah, there you go. Actually, that works. I, I, of, of all people, I think Bill said it right. <laughs> hey, so even, head, even a blind squirrel finds a nut every now and then. <laughs> so they head to this this snowy mountaintop, and this is where the next incursion is happening. So with these incursions, basically. The, the hook for this for me, the thing that got me interested in this that I do think is kind of cool is they're kind of it, – it's very similar to Crisis on Infinite Earths because when the incursions happen, the skies turn red and it, it's you know it's essentially – it's the end of the world. You have two universes that are starting to – two Earths basically that are starting to kind of share the same physical space and now it's, it's like Mortal Kombat's fight. So one of them is going to die and one of them is going to live, or both of them will be destroyed if if there is no clear victor, you know, between the two of them. If if there's no interference, essentially. So this is what's happening: is the multiverse is collapsing. Something has gone askew that is forcing these uh, these different sections of the multiverse to to collide with each other. So that was kind of the hook for me because I'm I'm a huge Crisis on Infinite Earths fan and I thought well this is kind of Marvel's version of Crisis on Infinite Earths, but the the thing that skews it and 
is both interesting and I'll be honest, off-putting to me at the same time is where this goes. So I'll, I'll keep going with the synopsis and we'll discuss that. So they see the, uh, the other earth, uh, intruding upon them. So this is the point where they bring the infinity stones together, the gems as they're called here, and they recreate the infinity gauntlet. So since that's such a recent big thing in the movies, I thought this would be another cool reason to bring this uh, this issue in. I like when they recreate the Infinity Gauntlet. It actually draws the attention of powerful beings around the universe. So you've got, you know, Uatu, you know, his ears perk up. You've got um, Galactus, and you've also got, of course, um, Thanos. All take notice that the Infinity Gauntlet is back in play. And they figure the the team agrees that the only one that they feel should wield it is Captain America, although he's very reticent to do so. But he does, and he wields the Infinity Gauntlet in an attempt to not destroy the other universe because he's very averse to this. That's already been put on the table as why don't we just destroy these other Earths as they encroach on us and He's really the only one on the team that's saying, you, you guys know that that's like the wrong, that's such a slippery slope, that is the wrong way to go, right? But in, a, in an effort to kind of appease Cap, they're going to try this route where he's going to use the Infinity Gauntlet to basically put the other Earth back where it belongs, and hopefully that'll be the end of it. So he's doing that, and he's using the power, but something goes horribly wrong, and... It's never really made clear. I kind of interpret it as he burns the Infinity Gauntlet out, but they never really say exactly what happens, just simply that all of the gems shatter and are destroyed, and the the gauntlet basically just fades away. It just evaporates. And they're all left stunned by this. Namor's pissed, and he actually belts Cap. He thinks that somehow... Cap is screwed up, and and now they're all doomed. But it it's never made, and I, I kind of like this that it's never made exactly clear in the story what the hell happened here. Um, it just it simply didn't work, and now they're not really left with any options. So we cut to later, where, um, in the this weird, uh, it's called Necropolis, this weird like dead temple thing that uh, evidently that the uh, Black Panther has been banished to. I don't know what that's all about. He and Cap are talking out on this balcony while the rest of the team are inside basically deciding what they're going to do. And Cap can kind of see the writing on the wall. He knows what's going to happen at this point. So the team has basically decided we really don't have any other options at this point. Our only option is that when these other Earths intrude on our reality, we have to figure out a way to destroy them. We, we basically, if we're going to save our reality then we have to, we, we've got to make some tough choices. We have to destroy these other realities in order for our reality to survive. And Cap, of course, is very opposed to this. As a matter of fact, he's really the only one that really makes an impassioned speech telling them, you know, this is a road from which there's no return. If you, if you head down this road, um, you're, you're basically, you're not heroes anymore. And I like that. I like that Cap, I wish certain other members would step up as well, and we'll talk more about that. But I like that at least Cap sees this very clearly, like, this is wrong. We, we can't do this. Um, and he and uh, he talks to each member, you know, as he's, you know, they're all gathered around. But at the end of the argument, he's basically focused directly on Tony. And Tony basically says, you know, why do you always have to be this way? Because uh, you know, much like Civil War, 
they're they're just they're winding up on opposite sides uh, of this particular argument and we see basically at the end of the argument uh tony just turns to stephen strange and just says do it stephen and stephen strange does kind of it's very similar to what was that dc the dc identity crisis identity crisis it's very similar to that where basically stephen strange wipes um, Captain America's memory of this event. He just, you know, he casts his, his cosmic whammy and just says, "You were never here. You will never remember any of this." And so it's just the opposite of remember. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So they, so now the rest of the Illuminati minus Captain America, their their resolve is set at this point that they know what they have to do and and they have to make the tough decisions. And that's the end of this particular issue. Um. I both really like this, but I'm really put off by this at the same time, if that makes any sense. I like the writing. I think it makes sense because I feel the same it's way. It's very intelligently written. I really like the the level that the story is operating on because it's at that it's at that cosmic level. It's dealing with very heady concepts. It's dealing with um you know, some, some tough things that are going to have to happen here, you know, some tough decisions that these people are going to have to make. And I don't want to say it's realistic, but it, it has a certain realism to it, if you know what I mean. But it's also done in that very modern style where there's a lot of snark and, and it's a little dark. Actually, it's a lot dark. But my problem with this ultimately is that Cap is right and that from where this story goes, I, I only have vague recollection because the problem with this type of modern comic, and I know we harp on this all the time, so I'm not going to try to make a big deal about it, but there's such a brief read and you can sit down. I mean, literally I, I throw these things on my iPad and, and I can burn through, and I'm a very slow reader by my own admission and I can burn through like years worth of these things in like 40 minutes. And it's like, if I can read it that fast, I'm not going to retain it. There's not enough meat here. And that's the problem is I read all this stuff, you know, a couple of years ago, I read the whole infinity saga. I can't remember shit about it now, other than little snippets here and there that stick out because they were cool or little character moments. But the overall thing, I don't remember what happens in this, but I, one thing that I do remember that really stuck with me was I, I didn't, like the tone i didn't like where it eventually went because these are heroes and a lot of them are my heroes and their cap is right they're on a slippery slope that leads them to places that i don't think that you could ever come back from i mean if, if you've got guys like say mr fantastic deciding that well in order to save my ass and my family and my world i'm going to destroy billions of other people on these other planets that you know yeah they're earth but yeah they're not my earth and i don't well to to be fair on that argument i'm sorry to interrupt no, no, go ahead. but i just want to do it before i forget the thought i guess you could justify it in some ways by saying if we don't do this this many people are going to die anyway all i'm doing is saying that we are the ones to survive right and I, and I think that argument is brought up at some point in this. I want to say maybe it was Namor, but somebody does bring up that argument is that, yes, you know, this this feels wrong, you know, in the in the pit of your soul. But, you know, as you say, if, if we don't, 
do something, there'll be nothing left at the end. Somebody, you know, in order for something to survive, somebody has to step up and do something, even if that something is is horrible. And we're not, in reality, sentencing these civilizations to death. All we're doing is saving ourselves. Right. I mean, that's the argument you can make. I'm not saying it's the right argument, because I think these people should be on on a higher moral ground than us. In general, not all of them. Like, I could see Namor coming to that conclusion. I could even see Tony Stark coming to that conclusion. But I'm thinking Black Panther and Reed Richards should kind of be on Captain America's side on this one, that, hey, we have to find another way to do this. I'm not, I'm not saying we should accept death, but we should find a, a way to survive without sentencing other planets to death. I think that's what bothers me the most about this, is that... I'll be honest, there's, you know, there, of the Illuminati that you've got here, and again, it's you've got Black Panther, Black Bolt of the Inhumans, um, Iron Man, uh, The Beast, Doctor Strange, Namor, Mr. Fantastic, and Captain America is taken off the table in this particular issue. So I have, you know, different levels of familiarity with, with different members of the Illuminati, um, and I'm not sure with with some of them. I feel like okay, I, I can understand this motivation and and why they're not stepping up the way Cap is. But the one that I feel like I do have a pretty good handle on, and that really shocks me, isn't not only isn't he stepping up, he seems pretty firmly in the camp of well, no, we have to do this. You know, if, if these other Earths have to die in order for us to live. If we have to actively kill these other Earths in order for us to live, I'm good with that, is Mr. Fantastic. I just feel like he's really out of character with this. He doesn't seem to be doing any soul-searching. He doesn't seem to have any reservations. He doesn't seem to have any moments of, man, this really blows, and I I wish I didn't have to do this, and, and... Oh, go ahead. He, he should be he should he should be coming out and saying I'm better than this, not on a moral level, but on an intellectual level. I'm better than this, and I will come up with a better solution. Just right. Give me the time. That's, right. That's his ego. I'm not even talking right. about morals. I'm talking about ego. He should be able to you know at any time say I'm going to resolve this without having to have the lesser uh, you know result. Right. Because that that is Mr. Fantastic's personality. He is supremely confident in his ability to do things and he always does come up with stuff uh i don't have as much of a problem with hank mccoy even though i think he is morally better than that but i'm kind of thinking he's the new guy on the block and he's not going to be quite as aggressive well there was a really good line i don't think it's in this issue but there is a really good line in in one of the issues because as i say these these are really quick reads and they all tend to blend together because again they're writing for the trade in these damn things Mm -hmm. so i'm not sure where which issue it's in but there is an issue where somebody says to mccoy basically are are you good with this or or, I, i think it might be cap saying hank you know honestly you're, you're okay with this and he says you're asking a mutant if he's okay with you know preventing his own extinction and i thought that was a good way to look at it is it, it kind of gives you a, a a small glimpse into where where he's approaching this from he's he's approaching it from the angle of i'm already an endangered species anyway and i kind of like that I, I thought that was an interesting take on that so it kind of that was enough for me to understand his motivation um the iron man motivation works only in the sense of they've already kind of made at this point tony stark kind of the asshole of the of the marvel universe so it doesn't really surprise me that he would take this stance only because this is 
the current model of him. Although I, it started in Civil War and it has exactly. Ended. But I'd be very curious. What do you know? How were long-term Iron Man fans dealing with with this uh, seemingly new spin? On, now, granted, Iron Man has always been. I have to be careful how I want to, how I want to say this. I, I don't think he was ever like like this, but I mean, he was never completely the altru you know the altruistic um, superhero to begin with. I mean, he you know he started out as the weapons manufacturer thing and. You know the the Playboy millionaire, you know all that sort of thing. So he was never Superman, if you know what I mean. But this is a whole different level, and I'm wondering, you know, how would somebody like say Luke Jacanetti feel, you know, about this? Somebody who was like invested in this character from way on back, and I, I don't know. I mean, e- even myself with my limited investment in Iron Man, feel yeah, this this is this is going a little bit too far. You're taking him to to extremes that I don't you know, is this really this character? Because he he was at the end of the day, he was still a hero. I think that was almost the point of the character is that he may have his sketchy side and he may have his skeletons in his closet, but at the end of the day, he still steps up and he does the right thing and he knows what the right thing is. Here, he's perfectly okay with this idea of, all right, if we have to nuke other Earths in order for ours to survive, I'm good with that, and, and let's go that direction. There's, there, again, another character that doesn't seem to, to be a lot of soul-searching and, and that sort of thing. The other ones, um, yeah, I, I don't, I'm, not, I'm just not familiar enough. Like with, with Doctor Strange, it seems maybe like it's out of character for him, but I honestly don't know where he is you know, in continuity at this point, what what headspace is he in? You know, in this particular iteration, because I'm just not that familiar with. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna say that, with the exception of Namor, I think it's out of character for everybody to go along with this. Yeah, but there's degrees, right? And you know, we're mentioning the ones who we think should be the most opposed to it, right? But Namor's the only guy who I see saying. You screw every other Earth. All I care about is mine, because that's always been his his attitude anyway towards <laughs> right. the Atlanteans. Right. If if Earth is flooded and everybody else dies, what do I care? As long as my people live. Right. You know that that's always been his attitude. So I think it's consistent with consequences. Consequences. Uh, as long as I'm rich. <laughs> as, long, as long as my people survive. Yeah. Uh, but everybody else, I think, is is being put. I, you know, I think what what uh, Hickman's trying to do is he's trying to create the. You know the no-win situation, which goes goes back to Star Trek Two, which is kind of cool. Uh, but but I think he's trying to create the no-win situation. But the problem is, I think he's he's put our heroes in a position of betraying their 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 ethics in order to do that, which I think is what he was trying to do. But I don't, you know, like you said, once you go there, it's hard to go back. Right. And when you're going to have these characters around for years and years and years and years you're creating something that's going to be inconsistent with the way they're portrayed. And that's a problem as far as I'm concerned. Right. Uh, you know, I think, I think it should be that, you know, maybe you could do it where this is put up, put on the table as a, as an option. And initially they start going along with it saying, well, we have no choice. And then they, as they discuss it, they come to the realization, no, this is crazy. We have to come up with another way. And right. If you do that. Now I think you're being true to their characters. You know, their their knee-jerk reaction was to do this, but then they realized that, you know, that's just not right. Right. And and then the whole thing could be finding another way as the doomsday clock is ticking on them. Yeah, I mean, that could be a pretty compelling story. Yeah, absolutely. 
So I, I, I think it's it's clever. It's well written. You know, you said it's intelligently written. I agree, but I think he is making some concessions to character that don't exist, and and that's the problem I have with it. And it's it's not easy. I'm not saying I could necessarily write it better. I can't. I'm that's why I'm not a professional writer. But I could sit and criticize. <laughs> I mean, it's it, with the best of it, them. It's definitely interesting, and I like that it's it's thought provoking. You know, it, it really gets you thinking about these characters, and it gets you thinking about both, you know, the nature of a hero. You know, what is a hero? But it also gets you thinking about how do you hold to your morals and and your heroic ideal in the face of this. And that's where I think the story gets really interesting, but it also, that's where I started to really get that kind of icky feeling. Because later on in this, they come to the realization, because there, there's, a, there's one incursion that happens where basically the people on the other side, they've come to the exact same conclusion. So now they're fighting for their survival, so they're trying to destroy essentially our Earth, for their Earth. So, and... So we end up with mutually uh, assured destruction, right? Mm-hmm. And there's a, a and it's he, Iron Man that says, "Well, this was inevitable that we were eventually going to encounter somebody that is doing what we're doing that that is just as intent that they're going to survive." And that's where this story really started to take a turn for me because there was uh, another incursion where the heroes that were fighting for their survival were essentially they were a thinly disguised Justice League. And, you know, the names were all changed to protect the innocent type of thing. But it was basically, it was the Justice League. And it gave me the feel of that Justice League was basically encountering their crisis on Infinite Earth. So while they're trying to survive the crisis, here you've got these assholes from the Marvel Universe trying to kill them at the same time. So not only are they fighting for their survival, but now they're actually fighting another team that's actively trying to destroy them. And... They were written very likably, and and especially the Superman character. I think he was called like Sun God or something. I really liked that character, and it was going in really interesting places. And just to see this guy written as a hero, and and that he was trying to do the right thing and save his world without actively destroying another world at the same time that the Marvel Universe was trying to actively destroy their world in order to survive it really shown a spotlight on how far dark these guys had you know how they had lost their way how how far they had strayed from the heroic path that this is what they're willing to do is they're they're actually willing to basically kneecap this other team that's trying to do it the right way they're trying to survive without anybody dying and that's where the this whole thing kind of turned a corner for me. And that might be the point where I actually uh, petered out on it just because of the feeling it gave me. I, I'm not really sure. I, I can't remember exactly where I left off um, in, you know, in my Marvel read through at that time. But I'm interested to get back into it and kind of see where all of this goes uh, anew because it, it is interesting. I, I do like it even despite kind of the, the feeling it gives me. So. That's why so I'm, I'm uh, looking at this, one. And, and, and I have a thought, and uh, I hope it doesn't piss Professor Allen off at me. But if we had this same storyline, but we had it a little bit smaller, and it's just a Fantastic Four story, I could see Reed Richards and Doctor Doom having a moral debate 
over how to do this, and this would be the doom resolution for, of it. You know, who cares as long as we eliminate, you know, as long as we, our, our planet survives, and then Reed saying, no, we can't go that way. Right. You know, and, and I, so, so effectively, and if this was a, a Fantastic Four story, I think that's exactly the way it would go. So I think that's an example of how they have Reed Richards not true to character in this story. And that's the thing that disturbs me about it, because I think it's a pretty cool concept, and I think it's it's well told, but I just don't like that these people are acting in a way that's not true to their character. It, it does bother me. Yeah. What do you think, Bill? You've been kind of quiet. No. No, I've, 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 I've just been listening. I've been... Uh, I'm just try, <laughs> trying to remember where all this goes. It's... This is... Uh, yeah, I was trying to think of those that Justice League analog, and I flipped through those. I haven't read them yet, so you're you're ahead of me, Scott. On that might not be in this title either. That might be. In, I think it's on. It's it's in one of the other t- titles because they they were yeah. all cr- crossing over at this time. It's either yeah. it, because you had Avengers, you had Avengers Assemble, you got Avengers Arena, you got Dark Avengers, New Avengers, Secret Avengers, Uncanny Avengers, and Young Avengers all going on at this time. And I think they had A plus X was going on, too. It's a little ridiculous right, right, is right there, now. Uh, is there maybe some sort of a redemption arc where they realize this isn't the right way to go? I think that's what happens towards uh, when they finally get the Secret War, I want to say. Because that leads to the end of the universe after the incursions. And right. um, I think that's kind of uh, where that will take place. Right. That's. I mean, to me, that's the only way to, to, to rectify this is at some point towards the end when they have a, an opportunity to actually destroy one of these worlds. And then they say, oh, my God, what am I doing? We have to stop this. You know, they, they come to their senses. That's the only to me. That's the only way to fix the problem I have with this. Well, the stuff with Tony Stark, um, I was. That's one thing I was thinking about while you guys were talking. Because since I'm just picked back up and I'm reading the current Stark title, I'm still trying to get a foothold of what's going on. And he's, uh, I, I don't see him being written right now as quite as arrogant. But again, it's only I'm in the middle of an arc, and it's all I'm only about. It's just finishing up. They just f- finished up uh, issue 600, and then uh, there's a new course. Hey, it's going to restart with the number one. Yay. Right. It'll have that legacy numbering. It'll be 601 as well. Paul and I talked about that last time, Scott, when you weren't here. <laughs> that should make for an interesting show, Scott. Be sure to listen to that one. Sure. But uh, I think Stark, maybe they've they've turned the corner on that because also the other book that you and I covered, Stark didn't seem to be. I mean, he still seemed to be the little flippant, you know, um, model he's had, but he didn't seem to be an a hole with uh, in that Doctor Strange book we read. We did two new books again, Scott. We're going cool. against against model. <laughs> Although you kind of pushed the envelope on this one. Yeah. Well, I, I, Scott and I were talking about that before you got on, and, and my position, uh, I was going to say our position, but Scott didn't actually say, uh, my position is our rules we get to make or break. <laughs> well, we any, we want. you know, any book can, can be, be in a bin at any time. 
Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure this is an no, quarter this, bin somewhere. No, are you kidding me? Good luck finding a quarter bin anymore. My LCS is running a, uh, a sale this weekend again. He's he's doing the now. Although I, I oddly enough, now it's like uh, seven dollars and under is a uh, dollar. Anything else is uh, he kind of ch- changed it. Usually it's ten and under is a dollar. So now it's like seven and under is a dollar. I'm like, huh. okay. Everything else is fifty cents. I mean, fifty cents, fifty percent off. You know, we, we've talked we've talked extensively about the storyline, which is kind of cool. Uh, we have not talked about uh, the art. Garfunkel. What do you think? Wrong art. Um, it's okay. It's it can be dynamic in in, in places, but well, I don't know. This is kind of that. What? Well, it's. Epting, which the first thing that I remember Epting from was um, Captain America and what else? There were, did he do? He did Civil War, didn't he? The first one. Uh, um, possibly. I don't think that was Epting. I'm not. I'm trying to remember now. Uh, I'll look. That oh, up. okay. You're gonna look it up. But I, I, I know I've seen Epting art that I. I know he was on Cap when this. it was relaunched when Cap was killed. So, I mean, I kind of like his art, but there's a little something missing here with it as yeah. well. I don't know if, if it was he who did Civil War. I think Maury, there was a guy. Steve McNiven. McNiven. Okay, and then I got my Steves mixed up. Sorry. But Steve Epting did do, uh, maybe that's why I think it's lacking, because I'm thinking of a different Steve. Yeah. I did like his stuff with Captain America, and I like how Cap looks in here. Um, part of the problem is this: this individual issue is a lot of talking. There's there's not a lot of action to it. Um, really, the only action heads. moment in it is when Cap is using the Infinity Gauntlet, and even that's you know he's he's basically standing there just shooting this power beam out. So it's not an action packed issue. I have the power. <laughs> <laughs> But I mean, it's it's good. It's it's you know perfectly serviceable and all. I just it's not exactly my thunder thunder style. thunder cap. Yeah. Oh, sorry. <laughs> yeah, I think it's good, and on an overall basis, I think it's pretty high quality. There's just a couple of individual headshots, and I think I think it's a, a byproduct of the fact that he had to do so many headshots in here. Right. There's a few that I just kind of don't like the expressions on the faces uh, that that he chose to put. And that may be a byproduct of if you're going to ask me to draw 200 faces, I have to, you know, I can't make them all the same. You know, I have to try and vary them somewhat, and I'm running out of expressions to put on these faces. Well, I, right. I'm surprised so. that uh, that Ron Perlman was guest starring as the Beast because he looks because he looks I, like I, oh I, boy, but blue, right down to yeah, to I, the I goggles looks like his particular, horns. Uh, I never liked this particular iteration of the Beast. I, I, I prefer that they they go back to the you know the one that we're covering in Avengers Spotlight. Wait, that's that's the look. You don't I want, want the Lion Beast when he went through his secondary mutation and became no, a cat? No, no, I, no, I don't. Pooped in a litter box. <laughs> oh, <sorry>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't like. Somebody this. clean a Beast litter box, please. I don't like. Thank that you. Picture of the Beast either. It's not. It's not that he's poorly drawn here. It's that I just don't like the way. You know they did the uh, the mutation on him at this point. Yeah. So we should rate this one because we got two more books to cover and <laughs> we're going to run out of time. Bill, you got thirty seconds to cover your book. <laughs> That's okay. It's just one story out of a bunch. So. So 
Scott, go All ahead. All right, your, well, your rating. Cover on this, I kind of like the cover. I like I kind of like the stylized nature of it and everything. It actually reminds me a little bit of the um, the promo poster for um, Acts of Vengeance somehow. But it's it's interesting and all. I'm going to say a... I'll say a B plus on the cover because it, it's pretty cool. I like the reflective uh, nature of Cap Shield, you know, showing the faces and all that. It's pretty cool. Um, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I don't know if it would actually get me to pick it up off the stands, but you know, this is this is well into digital era at that point. But anyway, yeah, uh, B plus on the cover. Uh, story on this one, I really like the story. You know, despite. You know my my you know the feeling it kind of gives me and all it gets me thinking it, it's interesting and all, um, but it is also just a minute sliver of a much bigger more massive story. Um, but as an individual issue, it's pretty good. It's more or less self-contained. Um, you know this chapter of the story and everything. Um, so I will say, I'll say a B uh, on the overall story. I, I think it's pretty good. And art-wise, eh, it's it's serviceable on the art. It's just not necessarily my preferred art style. I, I think possibly the colors have something to do with it as well. I'm not a big fan. Like the last three or four pages, there there are no backgrounds. Everything is just pitch black. Um, <laughs> Sorry. So, what? Oh, you'll find out when you hear show to Paul and I did. Oh, okay. Um, so I'm going to go art wise, I'm going to go a, a B minus on the art. I, I think the art could, uh, could use a little refinement, a little more fleshing out, uh, especially of backgrounds and such. So, um, and I think it's a little heavy on the inks too. It's very, it's just very dark overall. Um, not that this is a light, happy story, but it just, I think it's a little overused on the, on the darkness of it. Um, when they're out in the snow on the mountaintop, it's still dark, even though it should be, you know, gleaming white. So pollution. It, it, yeah, it just goes to kind of the nature of the of the coloring and the and the inking, I think. So yeah, overall grade on this one, I'm gonna say a B minus overall. I, I think it's it's pretty good, but yeah, uh, it, a lot of it has to do, of course, with the the overarching story that's going on here and and kind of the the dark turn that the marvel universe has taken at this point but yeah interesting stuff and i liked our discussion that spun out of it so there you go all right cover for me i own this book and until you pointed out to me that they're reflected in the shield i never noticed that (laughs) to me it was always and maybe it's because (laughs) i was looking at it in a smaller version instead of digital looking a little bigger that i mean i've looked at this cover a few times when i've been sorting when i bought him you know this cover would not make me pull this off the, you know, this isn't, uh, other than it being an Avengers book, it, I would just look at this and go, yeah, I would keep going. Um, right. One thing I did notice that I hadn't, I guess maybe I just never took notice of before, and knowing now what's going to happen with, with, with the Avengers at this point, that the, it's, the symbol is A for Avengers, which would be Alpha, and then there's an Omega symbol, you know the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the right, end. Right, right. I I haven't. I can't believe I've never spotted that because I think this is the symbol yeah. they were using all through this run of the book, wasn't it? Like yeah. I don't think you're. I, say. Right, I don't yeah. know. Yeah. So that's so that's a little. I didn't notice that either until you just said it. That's that's pretty clever. Actually. <laughs> like, ooh, hmm, interesting. So um, so with the cover, I'm just gonna give the cover a C because it's kind of average. 
I mean, it is kind of cool that they've got the reflection in the shield, but still, it's kind of, you know, it's not enough to make me want to want to grab it, other than my enjoyment of the Avengers. Uh, the interior art is is it's okay. Uh, yeah, it it is kind of dark. It is kind of heavy. Uh, we have you know the blue Hellboy, um, but I'm still going to give that a. I'm going to give the art a B, and the story uh, is. You know, it's nice that Cap, at least Cap is portray- is true to his character. The others, eh, not so much. You know, everybody seems to be given up, I guess, or ready to do what needs to be done regardless of the cost. So, um, I'm sp- C plus for the story. So we're looking at like a, a B minus C plus book for me. Right. All right. So for me, I think my biggest criticism of the cover is that the title symbol is just taking up too much of it. I think if they had made that smaller and then they made this cover, you know, bring everybody down a little bit. You don't necessarily have to see, you know, I, I understand the, dr- the drama of not seeing their faces except in the reflection. But, you know, you know, maybe you could even bring it up to their chest level or something. I don't know. Uh but the image is taking up too little of the cover to intrigue me. So that's the problem I have with it. I think it's well drawn. I really do like the reflections in the shield. And I like the fact that it's symbolic for what we're going to get in the story as opposed to just a poster image. So I'm going to say a B minus on it, but I think it could, it could have been a B plus. The interior art, overall, I think it's pretty good. I do agree that the Inking is too dark on it, uh, but overall I like it. I like I said some of the facial expressions I, I have some issue with. I think it's pretty good, but I think you know I've seen I've seen better out of uh, Epting. So I'm gonna say a, just a regular B on the interior art. Uh, the story I'm gonna give a B minus. I think if the characters had had a little bit more moral dilemma than what they get in here i think it would it could have been a b plus but i'm giving it a b minus because of that what i consider to be an inconsistency with the characterization of the characters but as a read on its own without considering that i think it's very interesting you know a lot of uh a lot of moral questions that are you know given to the reader to have to ponder which i like right overall overall i'll give the book a b minus but I feel it could have been so much more. And, and B minus is, you know, it's still good. I'm saying it's a good book, but I think it could have been a really good book. Right. So that's where we are on this one. Cool. And that'll close out our New Avengers number three discussion. And with that, we move on to our DC. I also did not do a pre-written synopsis. So <gasps> bear with me. We have Secret Society of Supervillains number one from June of 1976. And on the cover with a purple background, we have Captain Cold, Gorilla Grodd, the Mirror Master, Star Sapphire, and uh, Sinestro. And Grodd is taking robot, broken up robots of Batman and the Green Lantern and sticking them in the trash. And there's another broken up robot of the Flash on the floor in front of the trash cans. Captain Cold says, that's the end of those junkhead Junk heap heroes, Grodd. And Grodd says, Today we crush the robot Justice League, Captain Cole. Tomorrow we deal with, we destroy the real. 
And that's our cover. Uh, who is that by? Is that, is that Bill's friend that drew this? I see a signature. Ernie Chan. It is Bill's friend. So the story opens up. Uh, well, actually, the story is titled Secret Society of Supervillains Attend or Die. I think that's the title. It's written on the cover in a small spot. It is written by Jerry Conway. Art is by Pablo Marcos. Inking by Bob Smith. And those are the only credits that I see. Uh, it opens with Mirror Master and Captain Cold uh, running from the police after robbing a jewelry store. And they... Uh, they, they, they basically beat up the police and then escape Iceman style on an ice bridge. And they're hanging out in a hotel afterwards, splitting up the loot. And they get an invitation. And we cut from there to, uh, was it, is it Gorilla City, excuse me, where uh, Gorilla Grodd is escaping from a prison and beating up some apes. And then he is transported away. From there, we cut to, what city is this? New York, where Copperhead, the serpentine king of crime, is escaping from jail. And uh, he's met by one of his minions wearing the same outfit, which I just find rather amusing that these guys are walking around with this big Copperhead helmet on. Anyway, he's given an invitation to the first bi-monthly meeting of the secret society in San Francisco at the Sinister Citadel. And from there, we meet up with Sinestro, who's in out of space. He comes down to Earth and assumes a human form. And they all go up into the uh, Sinister Citadel, where he, he meets up with uh, a uh, apparently a woman who appears to be uh, a secretary or helper, but then it turns out that she's Star Sapphire. And they all come up to a meeting room, in addition to the people we've already mentioned. We also have Captain Boomerang, the Wizard, and uh, who was the who's the other dude here? Uh, Shadow Thief. They all start discussing uh, the potential of their new society or whatever when the Faux Justice League bursts in on them and starts to fight them. They are immediately suspicious that these guys aren't talking. Usually the heroes are tough to shut up, and Gorilla Grodd just starts beating on Superman uh, and until he breaks open and they realize that it's a robot. So at this point, they are approached by the Manhunter, or actually I believe he's the Manhunter 2, uh, who uh, tells them you know, this was a demonstration uh, for them to form their secret society to fight their mortal enemies, and they walk into a conference room with life-size statues of the Justice League in there for some reason. Uh, they, they even have their own uh, Jarvis in, in, their, uh, in their meeting area. And they're basically told they have to try out for uh, the society. And Gorilla Grodd is insulted by that, but eventually goes along with it. And he and Copperhead go to an island in, uh, I, I guess, in San Francisco Harbor, where they're going to break out, or San Francisco Bay, excuse me, where they're going to break out some uh, plutonium, I believe it is. Sorry if I... Uh, yeah, solid plutonium. They uh, they do get it, and they get into the uh, into the water to escape, but as they do so, one of the guards that they've disabled reaches for his gun. He hits uh, Copperhead in the shoulder, and Grodd 
just quickly just decides, well, I'm leaving him here. And he comes back where he meets with the society and Manhunter says to him, don't worry about betraying us, Grodd. Uh, don't worry about Copperhead betraying us, Grodd. We have ways to ensure his silence. So there's no loyalty whatsoever to these guys. And uh, Manhunter is uh, just contemplating what's going to go on with their benefactor, who we don't know yet, who I believe is the uh, smile, uh, the funky Flash Man. Uh, but I'm not 100% sure about that. And then we are promised the next issue is The Return of Captain Comet. And that's the first issue of the Secret Society of Supervillains. And this is interesting. We've talked so many times in the past about DC's silver slash bronze age. And I do think this is a, you know, we are, we are now in a bronze age story, but DC came along so slowly that I think we had kind of flashes of bronze age and then we'd go back to silver age with them. But I think yeah. this series in general was had a, had a Bronze Age feel to it. I think this issue did. And I kind of enjoyed reading this. I, I have most of this series, but I think I've read it all over the years very piecemeal. I've read this issue before, but I don't think I've ever sat down and read like a solid run of this series. And I'm, yeah. I'm kind of thinking, you know, maybe I want to do that now. So this was good enough to get me thinking that. Uh, you know, the artwork is... Not totally my style, but serviceable and, you know, fairly easy to follow. I kind of like it. There's a couple of images in particular that I like. I really like the image of Sinestro looking up at the building, uh, which is a two-page splash. Yeah. So overall, overall, I enjoyed this. I thought it was a pretty good read. Uh, you know, it's a little silly. The whole the idea of, you know, we got these Justice League robots that we're going to send in, you know, somehow that makes a difference. Then you walk into the meeting room, they have life-size statues of the Justice League in there. Like, why would you do that? It's just dumb. But I still enjoyed reading it. And, uh, oh, and uh, at one point, uh, Grodd makes mention of Planet of the Apes, which I thought was cool. <laughs> What'd you guys think of this? Much like you, I, now I do have the entire series of this, uh, including there was a, a special issue that was, I want to say it was a, it was like a DC special series or something like that, but there was a special issue that I think was originally going to be an annual, or, or maybe it was a, I'm trying to remember what the order was, it, it might have been where the book got cancelled, but pages were already done, so they put it in a, a special, I forget, but I, I'll, anyway, I, I have the whole saga of Secret Society. Um, but much like you said, um, if if I have read every individual issue, then I did it completely out of order and, and piecemeal, basically as I collected them. Um, I this is a weird one because this is one of those ones that I have fond memories of, but the memories are like it's more of a feeling rather than specifics. You know what I mean? Um, this to me, it, it was a series with a lot of great potential. I don't know that it ever really fulfilled that potential um but i really liked the issues um where rich buckler came on and rich buckler was the uh, was the um artist on it and i think along with changing artists a number of times i think it changed writers a number of times as well because i know at one point i'm pretty sure david anthony craft um was one of the writers on the series i forget who the other ones are like this one here was who was it on this one Conway, yeah, and I, th I think it does change. I, I could be wrong about that, but I thought it had changed hands um, in the writing uh, at some point as well. I don't know. I'm flipping through here now, and it's, it does look like Conway. Well, no, we got Bob Rosicus, the answer man, 
Um, actually, yeah, David Anthony Kraft did do uh, at least an issue or so. He, he came in in issue three. I'm looking right now at the issues I have, and Rosakis did issue five, issue six. I don't have four and five. Uh, issue seven is Rosakis, however that's pronounced. Yeah. Uh, then issue eight is Conway again. Yeah. There are some. I mean, there are some really good issues of this, though. Particularly, again, the uh, the Buckler issues. Um, there's at least one Buckler issue where it's uh, Buckler and Coletta, so you know, take that for what it is. But you also have some issues with. Uh, I know you have at least two issues, maybe more, that are Buckler and Layton. And Buckler and Layton together mm. are awesome. They they were a hell of a team together. I wish they'd done more stuff together. And, uh, again, you have at least one issue that was Buckler and uh, Bob McLeod, who is also another fantastic inker, and that looks good together. I'm not seeing those. Um, that one is... I don't know where those are. I'm seeing Mike Vosberg yeah. as a pencil. Yeah, those are later in the series, the, the Vosberg ones. And what I, what I liked best about this, the thing that always stands out in my memory most with this series was... I don't know exactly why they did it. I don't know if they felt like you, you couldn't really do just the villains or, or, or maybe they didn't want to focus on a particular villain being like the lead character. So they brought in a hero uh, into the book so that even though the book was Secret Society of Supervillains, it was still arguably a superhero book. But what was interesting about it was that I liked the hero. I thought the hero had a great look, kind of a cool story, and and you know, based on you know who the artist was, sometimes he looked really dynamic and everything. But basically, he was there to get foiled every issue. So it was kind of like it was like say you had a run of Batman where Batman fought the Joker every every issue and every issue ended with ah you know rats I got I got foiled by Batman you know which is kind of what you expected from comics back in this time is at the end of the day the hero would foil the villain at the end of it and it'd be like ah rats foiled again this was turning that completely upside down to where it was a team of super villains that managed to foil the hero every single issue. So at the end of the day, you're left with, you know, this Captain Comic guy is kind of a schmuck. He can't ever seem to to get his man or get any of them, really, because I don't remember him ever really taking any of them out. So, yeah, he, I, I think I still think it's weird because I still think Captain Comic's a cool character, but he's pretty damn ineffectual in this series. But he ends up coming in, I think, next issue. And uh, and was kind of the glue that that held the book together because then it became basically his his uh, you know never ending quest to to take down the secret society type of thing. But there were some some really good issues in there, and uh, the one that always stuck out to me was uh, number thirteen, and I think it spilled over into the next issue too. But number thirteen, where um, they had the um, the God, what were they called? Um, crime syndicate, the crime syndicate from Earth 3 um, got let out of their bubble for a time and I don't think you had mm-hmm. Ultraman, I think Ultraman and I'm not sure you had Owlman either but I know you had, at least based on the cover of it you had um, Johnny Quick Superwoman and Power Ring and um, they you know, they entered the story and then way late in the series, like the last one or two issues um, actually had some, uh, a crossover with uh, the Justice Society as well. So there, there were some really good issues. And, and again, some of the art uh, in some of the issues were really good as well. It's just 
the stories, I, I don't remember the stories being particularly memorable. Um, so that's kind of my problem with it is, is that, you know, again, I have fond memories of the series, but I don't remember anything of consequence ever happening so that the stories are just kind of, you know, inconsequential, but they're just fun. It, I mean, this is definitely good old fashioned fun comics, if you know what I mean. So there you go. Yeah, I agree. Um, yeah, we, I think we covered the first issue of that, uh, the, the, what you call it, the one with the, uh, Justice Society villain character. Right, right, yeah. I think we covered that at one time. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, yeah, like I said, I, I, yeah, I know it is inconsequential and it's silly and all of that, but, you know, it, it's a step up from the Silver Age. It's not quite up to what, you know, modern realism. To me, it's the escapism that comics should give you to some extent. Uh, so I, I really enjoyed it. What did you think, Bill? Why do the gorillas wear hats? They don't want their heads to get cold. But they're not wearing anything else. Well, it's kind of like, you know, Daffy Duck wearing just a navy jacket and hat. Where's his pants? Well, Porky Pig just wears... Donald Duck, uh, excuse me, not Daffy. Well, Porky Pig just wears pants. I mean, no, he doesn't wear pants. That's why it's called Pork Pig in it. When you go around (laughs) with just a shirt and a jacket. So what's wrong with that? Uh, I don't know. So this is a different star sapphire. I didn't know somebody else. Well, I guess, yeah, I guess you could have different people taking on a mantle because there was a little note in there that this is a different person. It's a, and I guess the power passed from one person to another because I mean later it'd be retconned way down on the line that it was another spectrum, like the star sapphire powers, like another spectrum of the whole ring spectrum with the, um, you know, the ring corpse and all that. But the I'm issue sure. I was thinking of is DC Special Series number six. Big issue. Yes, I have that one also. Yeah. I'm just missing three issues of this series. This this may be one I set my ta- my my sights on now that now that I've completed my run of Marvel two and one, I may start making this one a priority. What I find is really interesting. I'm looking here on Mike's Amazing World, and there have been two. There's been two hardcover collections, and then there's also a trade paperback. Now I don't know. Yeah, in the trade paperback, it doesn't look like it has this, but. In Volume 2, it's it's just simply called Secret Society of Supervillains Volume 2 Hardcover. In that one, in addition to wrapping up, reprinting all the issues of Secret Society of Supervillains, you also get some bonus material, which is pretty sweet. So you get that DC Special Series, but you also get one I'd completely forgotten about. And I think we covered this on the show it was DC special number 27. Um, it was the one, it was the all dinosaurs issue, danger, dinosaurs at large. And you had um, Captain Comet and you also had the Challengers of the Unknown. We covered that on the show, didn't we? I do not recall, honestly. If, if we did not. Uh, it's possible, I, but I don't remember doing it. Yeah, if we didn't, I think this might be a book that I read intending to bring to the show at one time, and maybe maybe we never did, so maybe I will bring that at some point, but that is a good book. It's so much just cheesy, like... DC again, Special number what? Uh, DC Special number 27, um, written by Rosakis, penciled by Buckler, inked by Rubenstein, Joseph Rubenstein. And uh, I'm looking at the cover now online. I do not have any recollection of, of covering that. All right. Well, next time I have a DC to bring, then I just might bring this because, oh, man, this book is so much fun. It's just 
you know, it's exactly as you described. It's it's like that late Silver Age sort of DC, maybe Bronze Age wacky fun. It's just and and you know, you know me. I'm I'm a sucker for Team of Freaks, and this is just total Team of Freaks. It's Captain Comet with the um with the Challengers fighting dinosaurs. I mean, it, it doesn't get cooler than that. You know, by by Buckler. So there you go. It's it's just fun stuff. But yeah, this uh, this volume two. Uh, uh, hardcover. It's it's got good stuff. It's got that in it. It's got the um, that special series issue, and then it's got. I had forgotten this. There were a couple issues of what the hell was the name of this series? Um, Super Team Family that tied mm-hmm. in with Secret Society of Supervillains as well. You get all that stuff um, in there as as well as they padded out at the end with a couple of uh, of issues of Justice League of America that I guess. Must have had something. Oh yeah, it did have something to do with Secret Society because you had that uh, the Switcheroo story, which I think is what spun into Identity Crisis years later. If I'm not mistaken, I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep. Now, do we did, any thoughts about the fact that this occurred? I'm not sure when in relation to, but pretty close in time to when Marvel was doing Supervillain Team Up. No, uh-huh. they, they, yeah. they always copy each other. I mean, that's what we just look, kind of looked at in the last book with the whole, you know, that that when the incursions come, you have a red sky with crisis, you know, things like that. Right. So, so they're always kind of stealing each other's ideas here and there. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know which one came first. I'm tempted to say Supervillain Team Up came first, but I could be wrong about that. And they, I mean, they are different conceptually. But yeah, because yeah. this is a Supervillain group, interesting although that it's... it's Highlighting a couple villains, you know, at a time. But it's—I just think it's interesting that it's a time when the the, the uh, companies decided that they could highlight villains a little bit more. You know, I think it's it's a, a reflection of somewhat of the loosening of the uh, comics code authority at this point. Super villain team up was first. Hmm. I'm gonna question on this version of the Manhunter. Now, I remember this Manhunter. I remember. Walt Simonson doing a Manhunter series. Am I wrong with this character? No, you're you're right. That was in Detective Comics. Um, it was a backup feature. I don't know if Simonson did the entire thing beginning to end, um, but Simonson, that was some of the very earliest Simonson. And, um, I thought the Manhunter, that character in this costume was a hero. Am I mistaken again? He, he was, and that's what threw me in this because I Okay, totally that's what threw me. I'm like, what? he Yeah, he, his name was Paul Kirk. Okay, and if I remember properly, it had something to do with he was a clone or something. Ah, shit, I well, this guy, remember this guy that. is a this one is a clerk, a clerk, a clone, a clerk clone of Paul Clerk, I think. Oh, this is the first appearing appearance of this particular. Uh, uh, let's see. Yeah, here. and he, he does say he does say. Uh, in fact, I'm a clone of a man named Paul Kirk. Oh, oh, oh there you go. Okay. Uh, let's see. The 1970s Paul Kirk Manhunter stories appeared primarily as eight-page backups in Batman's Detective Comics at the time, going through an incarnation as a 100-page super spectacular featuring mostly reprints of non-Batman stories. Only with the last episode of the series did Manhunter move to the front of the book in a full-length team-up with Batman. Yeah, because that's a great cover by um, Apero of Batman and Manhunter back-to-back faced with, like, I don't know, like, ninjas or some shit um ninja shit yeah I, I but yeah i don't i 
I don't remember what the deal is with this. I, I think that's if okay. This is starting to click. If memory serves, I think what happened eventually is that somebody cloned um, Kirk and made like multiple clones, and I think eventually that Kirk. became <laughs> that became <laughs> his mission was to oh, assassinate to the evil clones or something. I don't know. Is this, be- is this making sense? Is it- Am I making that up, or but, I think that? But be. he was already called the Manhunter, but then his mission became to be a Manhunter, and he was hunting himself. Uh, something like it that. Right. Yeah. Okay. Alrighty. All right. So on that note, I'm going to rate this one. Uh, I don't think the cover is the most artistically drawn thing. Right. But I just love it conceptually. I just look at it and it, it brings a smile to my face every time. So I'm going to give it points just for kitschiness. Uh, I'm going to give it a solid B because I just think it's fun. But, uh, you know, overall, it's just kind of silly in its own way. The story. I like the story. I think it's fun. I, you know, there's like I said, there's some stupid tropes in there, the, the robots and all of that stuff. But. It's setting things up for what could be an interesting run. So I'm going to say a B on the story as well. The interior art is a little messy. It's got some good images, but it's also got some that I just feel like they're thrown together. They almost feel like they're out of a Charlton comic. Right, yeah. Not too much in the way of backgrounds on most shots. Uh I'm going to say a C. I'm, I'm torn between C and C+, plus, but I'm going to just say a C on the interior art, and I'm going to give the book a B- minus overall. Hmm. Cool. Uh, the cover, I like the fact that uh, it was a Mirror Master, Star Sapphire, and Sinestro look like they're like little kids sneaking away, like hee-hee-hee-hee-hee. They're running off in the distance there towards the bottom of the cover. And... Uh, um, but overall, I'd say yeah, the cover's like a C plus B minus. Um, interior art. I like that opening splash. I, you know, there's a lot of the way it really, even for a static image, you can see the motion of them running. The cops are shooting. You know, Captain Cold has the bag of jewels flopping in the breeze behind him. You know, it's it's. I like that shot. Um, overall, though, it's 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 adequate. Yeah, it is a little like it's not as uh, dark as the last one, but some of the inks are kind of heavy in some spots. Um, so I think that's going to be a uh, uh, C plus. And the story, it's nice that the villains get to have some fun. Uh, I'm going to give it a B. So. B minus for me. Cool. Um, I really like the cover on this. I, I I feel like I shouldn't like the cover on this because it, it. That's exactly what yeah, I. Yeah, it, it breaks so many of the rules that that we've you know, and I say rules and air quotes that we've laid down. Um, I really I could live without the purple background. I think that's really the big thing that bugs me with it, but. I don't know. It's the art is wonky. The perspective is wonky. The 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 um, the um, anatomy is a little wonky. But I still I don't know. It just it gives me those warm fuzzies for you know for my childhood because this is stuff you know right out of my wheelhouse from when I was a kid. So yeah, I, I like this. So 
Uh, cover, I'm going to say, I'll say a B on the cover because I, I think it's just a, a fun, um, you know, late Silver Age, you know, DC Bronze Age uh, cover. Interior art on this one, it's kind of all over the place. I am not a fan of Pablo Marcus, um, but there's something about this that in certain aspects it really works. Uh, there's a lot of it that doesn't work, but there's a lot of it that does. Uh, I don't, I'm not usually a big fan of these kind of weird, stretchy, elongated figures in action type of thing, but there's something about a, a good portion of this that strangely works really well. Um, one that really won me over, and the, the pages aren't numbered here, but it's it's the panel where Grodd has smashed Superman on the ground, and he's going, it's a robot. I, there's something about that panel I really like. I like how Superman looks right there. It looks very Alan Weiss to me, and I was always a big Alan Weiss fan. Um, I don't know. There's, there's, there is a lot of wonkiness to it, but somehow the wonkiness kind of works with the concept somehow. So art wise, um, I think art wise on this, I'm gonna say a, uh, I think I'm gonna say a B minus uh, on the art because I, I dig it. It could use a little more refinement, and it, is, like I say, it is a bit wonky, but somehow it works. Um, Story wise, I, I did not have time to do a full reread on this, so a lot of it I'm going with just you know memory and and kind of my sentimental attachment to it, but. Um, I think in fairness, I think I'd say like a C plus because I think it's better than the average fare that DC was putting out at the time. And it is a hell of a lot of fun despite the goofiness of it and you know some of the wonkiness of it and everything. It, it was still, as I recall anyway, it was still always a, a fun time and a, and a fun read you know, that you, you didn't have to take it terribly seriously. And I, that's part of what I really like about it. So overall great on this i think i would say a uh, i think i'd say a b minus i think it's a lot of fun and i think it's a good first issue for the series although again i don't think this book ever really hit its stride until uh you definitely had captain comet on board and and you know the art vastly improved uh later on with some of the later artists nobody's gonna break our stride <laughs> with a society of super villains oh no we've got to keep on stealing <laughs> <laughs> and so, as we move on to our indie for the day. <laughs> oh wait, I get to cover Doctor William. We're not a, well, you get to cover part. You get to cover part of it. That's book. right. I finally get a chance to cover a book, and I can't even bring a full damn book, can I? <laughs> I'm always finding a way to slack, to slack off. Well, in honor of our upcoming holiday, which by the time somebody hears this will be long past, upcoming. <laughs> Tomorrow is just just to let everybody know we yeah tomorrow is Father's Day tomorrow everybody. is Father's Day happy happy Father's Day. as Ralph kind of once said during a Mets game and for all the fathers out there happy birthday <laughs> but uh yeah it's you'll be getting ready for Father's Day 2019 by the time you hear this <laughs> happy Father's Day to all you mothers out there so uh so I decided to cover the first story in the Creep Show adaptation of the movie uh the the graphic novel that was put out in uh 1983 by plume i believe signet classics uh plume new american library so yeah it's not even it's it's really is an indie so to speak and uh i guess maybe i should i don't know if i should read this and i have a off the cuff 
synopsis, but it's not that long of a story, and it's pretty simple. Uh, maybe I'll be the should I be the 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 do keeper for this story? Just, just do a <laughs> all right, all right. Oh, man. We spent 20 minutes deciding how you're going to do the synopsis. Man, first you asked me, gee, you're not saying much. Now you're like, shut up, get on with it already. Man. Shut up and talk already. Talk. So we open our story as the gathering at the Grantham house of the uh, the money-grubbing relatives. Well, I mean, we'll come to fi- figure that out uh, as we go. And they're all meeting and discussing how they're all waiting on their the, the patriarch of the, uh, well, I guess it would be the matriarch. Although they call her the patriarch. I thought patriarch would be paternal. Matriarch would be mother. But anyway, I digress. Patriarch patriarch is father. Matriarch is mother. Yeah, because they, they say right in the story, Great Ampedelia, the patriarch of the clan, which that's incorrect. That's a, that's a mistake. Yeah. So Great, Great Ampedelia would be the it, matriarch. It could also be a slight to her as well. Oh, that could be, yeah. Well, she, cause, that's a man, baby. She's manly. <laughs> All right. We can go with that. Yeah. So anyway, there's this whole uh, supposed story of how Aunt Padilla had killed her father, who was a real SOB and was never going to give up any money. And they should all be grateful that she did did the old bastard in. And and, uh, right on time at four o'clock, she arrives. They see her in the distance as she goes up to the grave and uh, squigs down some whiskey and recalls that fateful day on Father's Day when her father was smacking his cane against his wheelchair demanding his cake and also it, now so this is one of the things that i wanted to bring up that i don't remember from the movie but is in this book that it's alluded to that her fiance was killed by her father do you guys remember yes, that from the story that the oh yeah. it is in the movie yeah okay yeah. that i i wasn't 100 percent sure i haven't seen the movie in a long long time well i don't know about killed but he he definitely had something to do with driving them like like for for her never getting married essentially but is there a scene where she identifies his body in the morgue that's what uh, i didn't remember the, the scene where she actually because ad- it's 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 said that he was involved in a quote-unquote hunting accident <laughs> and that then she has to go and identify the body in the morgue and i don't i didn't remember that that scene from the movie I just I, yeah, I don't remember. I remembered her making the cake and him going nutso in the other room, and then finally she comes out and bashes him, bashes him over the head with the ashtray. And uh, <laughs> so they cut back back to the grave, and she kind of finishes her bottle there, and um, suddenly coming up out of the ground is uh, her father asking, "Where's Where's my cake, Medelia?" It's Father's Day, and I want my cake. And he strangles her, and then we cut back to the back to the relatives in the house, going, "Oh, it's getting late. I wonder, you know, what's going on." And the one, um, I believe it's probably the niece or whatever, her husband, who in the movie was played by Ed Harris, um, goes out to find Aunt Bedelia, and he comes upon the grave, and it appears that like it's the the, the dirt is recently dug up, and he falls into the grave, tries to pull himself out, pulls her body over on top of him. And in, as he tries to get out of the grave, the tombstone suddenly starts to move on its own. And before he can get out, it squashes him and kills him. He's dead. So we cut back into the mansion, and the uh, it's uh, Sylvia, who's the uh, the other. Uh, she would I think she would have been Adelia's anyway. 
the other lady in the in the house goes in to see what's keeping dinner and she finds that the um the maid has been killed and uh good old nathan grantham does a quick old you know the famous movie thing snap although it doesn't snap the neck he can completely twist her head around in a circle and reaches for the cake implements and the two remaining living people in the house go into the kitchen to find out what's going on and there you see sylvia's head on a platter with um candles sticking out of it as nathan uh nathan granham says it's father's day and i got my own cake happy father's day to me and the two people look on in horror now the other thing that's mentioned here because at the movie ends there with them just looking in horror at the head. But it says here, as the Crypt Creeper r- reads on, that um, uh, but the worst part came when old Nate blew out Cass and Richard's candles. <laughs> Poof. So, you know, obviously he kills them as well. So which that was never you. You kind of figured that was going to happen. But here it is confirmed that, that they get killed, too. So, um this is Ber- oh I I should have mentioned because I'm so horrible. This art is by Bernie Wrightson, which we had mentioned a few months ago, maybe about a year ago actually that that he had passed away. So, but this uh, I'm not sure if he did. Um, I'm assuming maybe his wa- his wife might have done some of the other inks or maybe the colors because it doesn't really say here unless you guys had any other info on it as to who might have done the art. But but I. But I like the art. It's done in the old style of the EC comics, which is what the whole movie was an homage to. And if anybody who's never seen the movie, where you been? Go, go look them up. There's been multiple sequels. All the stories in the movie are excellent. And this one, I, you guys had said that you hadn't seen this one as much, but I, I always re- re- remember this one mainly because of how crazy the step, the, um, uh, the, the father is. When, right, uh, the old, especially the old man that plays him, <laughs> he's like fun. He always reminded me. He always reminded me of the scientist from uh, "She Blinded Me with Science." Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but a lot more scarier and mean. So, um, especially when the the skeleton, well, the, the body comes out of the grave, and there's yeah, it's the. The one shot where he's like, I want my cake, you you know, he probably says bitch, and I'm going to have it. And there's, you can see maggots in the eye sockets of yep. the skull. There's still skin attached to it. The The top of the skull is broken where she hit him with the, um, with the ashtray. I mean, it's really nice. It's really, really, really cool. I love it. Nice and a gruesome. Yeah, no, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't want to seem like I'm like, oh, it's great, man. <laughs> but I mean... Reading through it, it's you know I, at the same time I'm reading the story because it's it's shot for shot almost of the actual movie, um, it, right? So you've got both things I both run in my head while I'm watching it, and it's it's kind of a nice little dichotomy that that you have like you can run both of these things simultaneously. What say you fellas? I saw the movie before I read the comic. Oh, same here, yeah. I, and I, I don't even know what the release was. I, the, I suspect that the movie came out first anyway. Yeah, I'll look that up. Um, but 
to me, it, it almost, you know, it, it kind of read as just, uh, like, like just an, an additional piece of material having already seen the movie. Uh, there was, you know, there was no surprises in it, obviously, because it's the same story. Uh, I did really, I, I'd say the thing, you know, the story, again, I, I kind of have my opinions on that based upon the movie already. So it's difficult to kind of get much out of it out of the comic. More or less what I liked about this or what made it different from having already seen the movie was just the way it's presented in that EC comic style. Mm-hmm. And I really like that. And actually, the movie is even yeah. They the they even have style. like close ups, and they even have uh, the Chris Keeper. The, well, they have panels like they actually like frame things like it's a comic panel. Both the movie and this book came out the same day, the same year, so it was probably a multi platform, like a you know a case of uh, yeah. you know mul- you know reading thing re- releasing this on multiple media for 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 the time. This was, for all intents and purposes, this was the novelization, you know, because you'd often get novelizations of of Mm. popular movies when they would come out. And rather than do a prose book, which they may have done, if they did, I've never seen it, but they may have done an actual prose book. But this was the movie tie in. And I I think it's pretty awesome. Um, I mean, you know, what's cooler than, than, you know, Stephen King doing an homage to. Um, you know, the old EC movie, you know, the old EC comics in a movie, and then you get Bernie freaking rights and to draw it. And, uh, yeah, this is some great rights and stuff. Yeah. Cause, because the cover is, um, um, it shows like, uh, like a Crypt Keeper guy in a window and there's a boy reading right. a story on his bed. And it's actually the first story that's in the movie and in, in this book and the posters behind him on the wall, or George Romero and Stephen King movies. Right. You have The Shining, yep. Carrie, and Dawn of the Dead behind him. And actually, the uh, Dawn of the Dead, obviously, is a George Romero movie. Carrie is the movie poster. The Shining is the book cover. That yeah. is not the movie poster. Yeah. Oh, you're right. right. Okay, yeah. yeah. So that that's, that's kind of an interesting choice that they made there. Uh, and this may... I'm trying to remember if this predated the Shining movie. I don't think it did. I think the Shining movie was already out. Uh, but, you know, the cover is, is really well drawn, and I was almost surprised to find out that that wasn't Bernie Wright's. Yeah. It's, uh, oh, who did it say? It yeah, was? I'm not sure it who did Jack say, Cannon, yeah. who I'm not familiar with otherwise. But, you know, obviously he recreates that EC style very well as also. So you, it... it it almost looks as if it's the same artwork as the as the interior, even though it's not. The Shining was right. out two years earlier. 1980. Okay. Yes. Wow, that's what I was. That's what came to mind was 1980, and I don't know how I knew that because I've never been a big fan of that movie. <laughs> but yeah, that's what I was thinking. That's that's wild. Paging through it, uh, we we said earlier that even though we enjoyed this story, this was I guess before we started the show uh even though we enjoyed this story that it was probably our least favorite of the bunch uh but looking back paging through this actually my least favorite was the uh the actual stephen king <laughs> starring story geordie verrill the, the like lonesome that. death of geordie verrill yeah yeah it's I, all I, right I thought that was just he he played just such a, a such a dopey character that it was kind of difficult to oh, watch Jordy, yeah, you it's, it's really, yes yeah the funny thing about that one is i don't really like the story because you're right it's very cheesy it's way overacted and, and kind of silly but 
but I always liked that one from the point where where Jordy dozed off to the end of it because when he oh. when he wakes up after he's dozed off and he's fully the swamp creature from that point forward it's 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 kind of tragic and I always liked of the ways of the ways that these different stories ended because each one ends with either a twist or a really creepy ending of all the endings of the stories this was my personal favorite because you could see this whatever this swamp goo stuff was was now going to take over it was encroaching mm-hmm. you know it was it was moving up the road or something like that as i remember and i thought it was really cool mm-hmm. I, I just well, that, i loved an ending to it my my favorite my favorite story is is the uh what's it called the something to tide you over and that's that's more on a basis of leslie nielsen just because i love leslie nielsen um i can hold and my then, breath a long, a long time. time yeah i love that one and the then the music other two, the they, they're, mm, they're creeping up on you in the crate were just the two that I found to be the most realist, most creepy in their own way. Right. So that's that's why you know they they actually spooked me a little. So that's why I thought those were superior. But the Jordy Viral one just kind of it's like, all right, can we get on to the next one? If I owned this on DVD, which I don't, I would probably just uh, go you know chapter search to get right. Jordy Viral. <laughs> I always thought the creepiest part of the the whole movie though, and it and it's kind of creepy in this, but it's weird because in the book it it is creepy, but it there's stuff I find much creepier in the comic, but in the actual movie, the part I always thought was creepiest of all is when Ted Danson drowns. Because I don't know how they did that. You oh, know, how he was, when they showed him under the, like, like yeah. they cut away, yeah. and then they cut and back, it, and they cut, and it, now he's under the water, and he's, like, looking around. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah and, that you, was... and you see him finally give up, and, and <laughs> you know, the, the bubbles come out, and he takes, he takes a breath of water, essentially. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that used to just freak me the hell out when i was a kid and i still think that's the creepiest part of the movie but strangely of the of the comic there's a lot of stuff i i think that's actually creepier than that but but yeah this this is i mean it's this is really good it's it's very well drawn and uh and very evocative of those old horror comics it's a lot of fun and actually i think the creepiest thing in the entire book might be uh stephen king's picture on the back cover (laughs) yeah Maybe I'm getting this confused with Creep Creepshow Two, and, and I think I am. Is Creepshow Two what they have the story in, intercut between the stories of the little kid with the voodoo doll that takes out his dad? No. Is that no, in this? No, that movie? is Creep. That's Creepshow. Yeah, that's not in this book, but that is in Creepshow. Okay, so that's the, in the ads as they go from movie from right. segment to segment, and you see right. at one point there's a voodoo doll thing cut out because. Yeah, because the dad's yep. like down there. He's like, "You're not reading those crap comics, are you?" That's right, because yep. he's that's why he's hiding in his head with movie, the light. That's yeah. how the movie ends, if I remember right. Is the kid sticking sticking needles or something into the voodoo doll? I think that's how the movie ends. The connective story in Creepshow Two was, um, it was a cartoon. It was where the kid had purchased the the giant flesh eating. Venus flytraps, and he tricks the other kids that were always picking on him oh, to, to the middle right. of nowhere, and then the Venus flytraps eat the kids. <laughs> I love the second movie. I, I I don't know that that one ever got a comic adaptation like this, but I wish it had because I I really like the second. I mean I, I like them both, but the second one's my personal. I think 
I think the stories were just better in that one. I think you got more um, really good stories in that one as opposed to the quality on this one kind of goes up and down, I think. You've got some really good stories. You've got, some, you've got several stories that are kind of like, meh. Because of Creepshow 2, because that came out a few years after this one, I would never, ever swim in a lake again. Right. <laughs> ever. Just can't yep. do it now. Yep. <laughs> because of that... That like sludge stuff that comes out, it's like eating the ducks in the lake, and they go out on the yep. raft in the middle of it, and then, uh, uh, oh god, it just like it's that pile of gooey stuff. It's just running through, and you can see bones and feathers and skin and all kinds of animals in it, and then yep. it, like it. I it, love like, that the, one. I thought that was great. And then, like the guys I going to make saw out that at the movies. Ugh. Guy's going to make out with a girl, and it like comes up through the bottom of it, and like while he's making out with her, she's like her face is being dissolved and eaten through the. Oh, it's like that's the worst part of that is that you know he was supposed to be looking out for her because they're trapped on a raft, they're surrounded by that thing, and they they can't escape, and she ends up falling asleep, and he's supposed to be watching out for her while she sleeps. And instead, he's lifting up her her bathing suit to get a look at her boobs, and and there's that one part where she, it almost looks like she's into it because she starts to moan and stuff as he's, I think he's like touching her nipples or something, and then her eyes come open and you realize she's not moaning with pleasure. That thing's got her from underneath. It's come through the the cracks, the in, cracks the rack, in the rack. And she turns around and and like half her face is eaten. Oh my god! Yeah, she raises her head up and it's yeah. like it pulls the skin and. And then he freaks and yeah. he jumps off the raft and he's swimming and he, and he gets to the land and he's like, ah, I beat you, I beat you. And then that thing just goes, rah, 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 pulls it back in the water. The only thing, the only oh, problem with that is that if you ever saw the commercials for the movie on TV, they spoiled they, the friggin' ending on TV because they showed yeah. the thing coming up as a wave yeah. and eating him off the beach. And I hated that. I'm like, why would you give that away? But, well, out of context, you don't know and, what's happening. But, but yeah, but yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. Well, I was, was always that guy that would watch the watch the trailers over and over again, and then if the scene that was in the trailer wasn't in the movie, I would always notice it, you know. Because <laughs> like Roger Rabbit, they had the scene where where Eddie has the pig head, and I remember going to see Roger Rabbit like a billion times, going, "Where the hell is this scene with the pig head? It's not in the movie." But yeah, they cut it out. Anyway. Love a good pig. <laughs> so why don't we rate Creep Show? And, and you know what? I'm going to make it. Uh, I want to limit you guys to just rating this one story because as time goes on, we may cover. Oh, the sure. Others. Sure. Yeah. 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 Um, well, I mean, the cover, uh, I'm going to give the cover. I'm going to give the cover an A and the interior art. Uh, there might be one or two pictures that look a little off, but you know, back then some of those EC books did look a little off. Like, like the picture of the car looks a little uh, like where it's it's driving up. It looks a little, you know, maybe that fender looks a little a uh, little out of kilter there. But I I can let that go. So I <laughs> I still think I'm going to give the art an A as well. And the story, it's a good good scary. It it's an A. I get it's all A's for me. A. I'm gonna I'm gonna agree with you on all of the grades. The only thing I'm gonna say, and I, it's not often that I say this, I think the artwork would be better if it was in black and white. Mm. I like color in books. I, I generally don't prefer black and white, but I think this one 
if if they hadn't bothered coloring it, if it had come out as a black and white magazine, it would have seemed more moody and more uh, just with with you know it would have been more evocative of those EC feel of the EC feel I think. So that's the only thing about it that I wish they had had changed, but I'm good with it. I, I really like this. So A A A. Um, I will go AA and I think a B minus on the actual story uh, for this particular chapter. This is just not one of my favorites. Um, we had said before we got started, um, we were talking about the stories in there, and, and I said that this was my least favorite, and I'd forgotten about the one at the end, the the co- the cockroach one. That's actually my least favorite one, um, frankly, because I just think it's kind of boring. Um, but this is, this is next to that one. It, it's, it's good. And I like, I liked it more for the comedic value of it. I liked the, the dad, you know, and he kept clacking the, you know, his, his cane or whatever, you know, I want my cake, Bedelia. And I, I always liked the, the sound, um, of when he came back and he was the, you know, he it was, was the all movie. like, I mean, the, it's all like gargly and yeah. I don't know yeah. how they they created that voice, but I love that voice that he had. But it was more about the comedic value of that um, than the actual story of it. Um, so yeah, um, enjoyable, but just not my favorite story in the book. All right, fair enough, and that's it for this Wait. episode. You got time for what, got what, time what? for an email, or is the one email that was uh, that we were going to do last time, but. Thank you. Right, let's do an was, email. It was Scott centric, so we were we were waiting for Scott. Ah, okay. You thought we were going to get off Scott. <laughs> uh, it would be a miracle if we that's did. It, folks. That's all we got time for. I'm done. Ah. <laughs> a miracle. See what I did there? True blue spectacle. <laughs> what what was just said? Speckled what now? What? It's, the, it's it's actually, of all things to be uh, going on, it's a Barry Manilow song. It's a miracle. It's a true blue spectacle. Oh. A miracle. Country. Oh, geez. Why'd you have to send that, Scott? <laughs> there you go, Damn. buddy. I haven't, haven't looked at that yet. I'm not going to be able to watch porn for at least ten <laughs> minutes. <laughs> oh, that's gross. <laughs> Okay. No, nobody listening needs to know anything about that. So the, the, the email we have is from Luke Giaconetti, and it is titled The Dreamer and Combat Kelly. And Luke writes, Pliers of the Time Stream. Hey, guys, just listen to episode 315 featuring The Dreamer and Combat Kelly and his Deadly Dozen 2. I, have, I had not heard of The Dreamer, but Scott's glowing endorsement has made me want to check it out. The premise of a historical romance centered around a war reminds me of the novel series Outlander, now better known for its TV adaptation. That series invokes a post-World War II English woman being transported back to the Highland era, Scotland, during the lead-up to the Jacobite Rising of 1745, which eventually sees the English soundly defeat the Scots, then outlaw and stamp out the Highlander way of life. Much like Scott describes here, I was drawn into that series not for its romance, but for the historical aspect, as it comes off as very authentic and well-researched. So a big thank you to Scott for bringing this book and making me aware of it. As for Combat Kelly, I was aware of this series owing to my more comics fandom, and I think I had known 
that the final issue showed the team getting wiped out. This particular issue is somewhat infamous among War Comics readers for that reason. This sort of storytelling was not done in 1972, even in a war book. It also seems like something more suited to DC's war output, which despite some of the silly concepts like the war that time forgot, tended to be a little bit more grounded and was a little less over the top than Marvel's war efforts. Speaking of which, I do want to mention that Sergeant Fury had one other spin-off besides this book, Captain Savage and his Leatherneck Raiders, which ran for 19 issues in 1968 and features a story where the team has to rescue Army pilot Benjamin J. Grimm years before his fateful flight into space. This is appropriate as an early issue of Sergeant Fury featured the commandos working with an OSS agent by the name of Reed Richards. Here's something I did not know. Apparently, Combat Kelly was originally an Atlas War book, which ran for 44 issues. Even more unusual was that it was set during the Korean War, meaning it depicted a contemporary conflict, very uncommon for war comics here in the U.S., which typically tell stories of past conflicts as allegory for the current ones. The Atlas book did not feature the Deadly Dozen, however. Anyway, I just wanted to say I enjoyed the show and look forward to hearing more, hopefully with the whole crew together. Thanks, Luke. Well, you got the whole crew together today, Aww. and you're probably regretting it now. <laughs> Aww. <laughs> Aww, so I was very touched that he said that. Cause... And then Paul had to go and ruin most it. Most people are happy when you're not here. <laughs> Say that again, I'm sorry? I said, I said most people are happy when you're uh, not yeah, here. Yeah, I know, right? That uh, that one, I can't remember who it was, but that, that one that we got there a while back that uh, uh, apparently was so offended by our Uncle Sam episode. That that has stuck with me. And, uh, yeah, so it's, 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 it's nice to hear that, you know, while there are people that are going to boycott every episode I'm on, there's also people like uh, Luke that are like, oh, I wish everybody was there. So, yeah. That, that stuck with me as well, and I, I still am kind of bothered by that somebody would say that. Yeah. I think it's, I think it's an unfair criticism, quite frankly. Yeah. I think it's unfair and unreasonable, and I'm, I stand by my Scott. Aw. Anybody, you know, we, if we lose a listener because because we want you on the show, which, by the way, is your show that you invited us on to, I'll just mention. Uh, <laughs> if we lose a listener because of that, that's a sacrifice I'm willing to make. Uh, I, I'm sorry that anybody feels that way, and I wish nobody did. But if you feel so strongly that you're bothered by any of the three of us, then we we stand together. Absolutely. I appreciate that. Thank you. <laughs> we stand together unless, of course, it's me, in which case the two of you throw me under <laughs> the bus. <laughs> Sorry, Paul, you can't come on anymore. <laughs> All right, well, this was fun, guys. This was. Nice to do... Nice to do a morning episode every now and again. I, I don't know why, but it just feels like the energy level is high. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we hit our mark. Look at that, 11.01. There we go. Yeah, that's what we were shooting for, and we got there. So I hope everybody enjoys listening. Goodbye, everyone. Bye. I got my cake. <laughs> Vanilla. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to our show, and we hope you'll continue to join us each and every week for more good old-fashioned comic book back-issue awesomeness. You can contact Back to the Bins to leave feedback, comments, questions, suggestions, and criticisms via email at backtothebins at gmail.com or by joining the Back to the Bins group on Facebook. 
Back to the Bins is a proud affiliate of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, which you may find at www.twotruefreaks.com. Two True Freaks is a registered trademark of Demanzo Corps of Milan, Italy. All rights reserved. Each and every month, the Two True Freaks Network produces dozens of new and exciting episodes which regularly reach tens of thousands of loyal listeners worldwide. Sponsorship and or advertising opportunities are available. Inquiries may be made via email to twotruefreaks at gmail.com. Please take a moment to stop by the twotruefreaks.com site and check out their many other fine podcasts, won't you? Thanks, and we'll see you next week. Where's my cake, you bitch? (laughs) She blinded me. No, wait. (laughs) She blinded me with sides, you bitch. God, I can't. It's it's old Rick Jones.